Hello and welcome to the Herbicane Podcast. My name is Simon Osmo and I'm a former UK police detective turned entrepreneur and mindset coach. And on this podcast, I talk with impactful individuals from around the world who have navigated a life pivot, found themselves for a self-discovery to find that thing that we've all been looking for, a happy and fulfilled life. So the excuses are over, my friend. It's time to change our thinking so that we can change our lives and come join me as we dive into this week's conversation to learn how they became who they became. Welcome to the Became a Podcast. I'm Simon Osimo, and my guest today needs little to no introduction. I'm talking to Carol Baskin, who became the star of the Netflix hit show Tiger King predominantly due to her long-running feud with Joe Exotic. Now, in this conversation, we're going to talk about her journey to Big Cat Animal Rescue in Tampa Bay, Florida, and how she left home at 15. Now, stick around to the end of the conversation as I do ask her her views on Joe Exotic and that rumour that never seems to disappear about her missing ex-husband. As always, if you get something from today's content, please share on your social media tag me in it means so much to me it really does but without further ado let's dive into this week's conversation with carol baskin So, Carol, you are most probably best known. It seems a little bit strange for being the star of the Netflix show, The Tiger King, uh, but you're also the founder of Big Cat Rescue. Uh, you're now the host of, it's a fantastic name for a show, Carol Baskin's Cage Fight. I, I love that. I had to even Google just to make sure you weren't um, cage fighting there. And you've also appeared in Dancing with the Stars. But I guess there's a lot of things that have been said about you in the press, Carol. You know, the show portrayed you in a certain way. But what people most probably don't know is too much about, well, who is Carol Baskin? So I know that you grew up in Texas, your dad was in the Air Force. Maybe tell me a little bit about sort of, you know, where you were raised and your upbringing. So even though I was born at the Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, we moved back to Tampa when I was about three years old. And I lived in Tampa for most of my life. My father had many, many jobs over the course of his life, but He had been a flight instructor, and then he later became the personal pilot for Governor Archmore in West Virginia. So we moved to West Virginia until Governor Rockefeller took over, and he sold all of the state planes and bought helicopters. So my father didn't have a job because he didn't fly helicopters. He moved back to Florida, and I went to work for Governor Governor Jay Rockefeller. I was 15 years old at the time. I had already left home at that time. My parents had to sign a a statement saying it was okay for this underage child to be working at a government office. But that was my first start into trying to create my own way out there. Yeah. And it's funny because I read that somewhere about you and I was thinking 15 years old, that was, it almost, uh, you seem too young for the generation. I guess, was that still the period when you grew up, Carol, that people did go off to sort of get jobs and stuff that early or was there just a sort of driver to sort of, you know, pursue your own destiny at a younger age? I think I was a bit of an outlier at the time because the press was having a field day with the fact that I was the youngest state employee. And I think it came from being an only child for the first six years of my life. My brother came along when I was six, but there was such a difference in our ages that I tended to be an only child. And I absolutely am for that. If you have a single child, 
keep them as an only child because I think it causes you to have to be more creative and take more responsibility for everything around you, which I think is a good thing for kids. Well, see, I'm the, the opposite. I've got two boys, eight and 11, and we use our 11-year-old now as a babysitter. So I advocate for at least having two because then you, on the days when you want to sit on the couch, Simon has some leeway to say, go and play with your older brother, you know, rather than saying, well, there isn't one. So, yeah. And, and you got married at 17, which is really young as well. And I know you had your daughter around that sort of time. You, you, but you said something very uh, interesting, though. You said the press had had a field day about you being the youngest sort of state employee. So you've obviously, Tiger King wasn't the first time then, Carol, you've come up against sort of adversity in the press and stuff. Is that right? Yeah, and it really shocked me because here I was, I just wanted to, to work for Governor Rockefeller and the media came out saying that I was the stripper at a place called, I, that my name was Little Egypt and I was a stripper at some like Greek restaurant dance club kind of thing. I can't dance a step and everybody who watches Dancing with the Stars knows. I was going to say, you've been on Dancing with the Stars, Carol. So I mean, you know, you, I'm glad you said that post going on the show rather than before. They might not have taken you on the show. <laughs> I love it. And so, you know, so you left home at 15, you know, very young, um, you know, so got married at uh, 17, you've got your daughter. And then I know before, which again, might not be too well known about you, before you really sort of drifted into the preservation of saving some of these um, predominantly big cats, which are being used as sort of um, pets across America, and really the world, you were sort of in real estate and stuff before. So you, have you sort of had numerous different sort of reinventions and, and careers, Carol? Yeah, I think the fact that my father was such an entrepreneurial spirit and his father before him was and my grandmother was on my mother's side. My mother was a very stable person. You know, she always worked for law firms or very stable corporations, but the rest of us were kind of uh, creatives. And so as a result of being in that kind of environment, we were always encouraged to be creative and to do our own thing. So when I was 17, I was doing a lot of bobcat rehab and release if a bobcat gets hit by a car, the vet can fix them up in 30 minutes or so. And then you're talking months of rehab for that animal to be able to go back to the wild. And the only animals, the only wild cats you can release to the wild are those that were actually born in the wild. So I had been doing that from the time that I was 17. And then later when I was married to Don Lewis, I was in my 30s and we had llamas on and we would turn them loose on big tracts of land because they eat about eye level. And then we'd put them on another piece of property. And we were in real estate since the early 80s. And so uh, that was how we ended up at an auction. We were buying llamas. And the guy next to me started bidding on a six-month-old bobcat. And so I leaned over and I said, when that cat grows up, she's going to tear your face off. And he said he was a taxidermist. And he was just going to club her in the head in the parking lot and mm. make a den decoration out of her. So I started crying and Dawn started bidding and we came home with her, but she had been born in captivity. She had been declawed. She couldn't be released to the wild. So we started, well, actually Dawn started looking for a playmate for her because she was just terrorizing everybody in the house, even on her German shepherd. And a guy said he would sell Dawn a kitten, but he had to come in person. And that was a place in La Center, Minnesota, which I understand you're from. I know, yeah, that's, that's right. Well, I'm a British in Minnesota, so I am. So I, I heard a little bit about the story and I was intrigued to, to dive into it. Yeah, so you got this cat, you know, you, you needed to find a sort of companion because it was sort of maybe becoming too lonely or, or, or was changing its personality in an aggressive way, whatever it was. You end up in Minnesota. So, so tell that story because it's fascinating as to how you were 
because it really it's a sort of start of your journey, Carol, right? Within the big cat world. Yeah, I never knew that any of this was a problem. From the time I was eight years old, I was dead set on trying to end the killing of healthy cats and kittens in shelters due to overpopulation. And so I always thought that would be my mission. I didn't intend to get off on this thing with the, the big cats. But when we went into this place in La Center thinking to get a mate for Winsong so that she would have somebody that she couldn't beat up, the guy's showing us all of these kittens and the the conditions in there were so wretched with just piles of feces and dead carcasses and flies everywhere that we had to put wow. handkerchiefs over our faces to even be able to breathe. And over in the corner, I see a stack of dead cats and they've had just this piece of belly cut off of them. And the reason for that is bobcats are brown with black spots. Their bellies are that white fur with the spots that you see like on the crowns on the old um, yeah. British crowns, or sometimes you'll see it on capes and that's bobcat fur. And so as I'm looking around the room and trying to adjust because it was really dark in there and this guy's pulling out all these kittens and showing us. And I said, is there this big of a market for these animals as pets? And he said, oh no, this is a fur farm. When they get to be a year old, we'll slaughter them for their fur. And I burst out crying. I, I understood all of a sudden what that pile of dead cats in the corner was. And my husband said, how much for every cat here? And so we came home with 56 bobcats, Canada lynx, and Siberian lynx that day. And <laughs> that was dumb enough. <laughs> well, I, I'm just trying to contextualize how you even get these things home is, is one of the, the, the first things that comes into my mind. I imagine you, I don't know, going to a pet store and saying, can I have 60 of those cages or something? You know, it's like... We bought out every carrier, every crate, every, even a lot of, well, all of them were kittens that we took. So uh, toolboxes, we drilled holes in two toolboxes. We went around gathering up all of the nursing supplies that we possibly could. And when we came home, we started building cage. I mean, my whole house was just like rows and rows and rows of cages to keep these guys up off the floor so that it was easy to clean and they had to be fed every four hours around the clock, but we didn't want to leave a single kitten there to be killed. Well, the next year, the guy reaches out to us again, and he said he had kittens again, and we realized we didn't fix the problem. He was just going to keep doing this. And so we said, okay, how much for every adult, every kitten, everybody here, and you never kill cats again for their fur? And he agreed to do that. And so the next year, we came home with 28, and then the following year, we bought out another fur farm of 22, and then we started working on the Canadian fur farms to try and get the cats out of those fur farms when I lost my husband in 97. But meanwhile, people were calling me when they heard about all of these bobcats and lynx that we had rescued and said, you know, I got this tiger when it was a cute little cub and now it's 200 pounds and I can't deal with it anymore. Can you come get it out of my yard? And so we were taking those kinds of calls and started rescuing lions and tigers and leopards. And I just thought, how on earth can this be legal at every juncture throughout all of this, I was shocked that this was allowed to happen and naively thought I could fix it, <laughs> that I could mm. end it. And it's taken almost 30 years. We'll be celebrating our 30th year in November. And, <sighs> and I was going to ask that, Karen. I mean, I, what's, what struck me, and, and it's a really sad question to ask, but, but in those 30 years, yeah, has anything really changed? Have we, and because I know if you know, we sort of drift into the Netflix story, I'm sure you went into that thinking this is going to raise awareness, this is going to help the cause. Um, but 
where would you say you honestly are 30 years um, forward? Well, we're really actually much better off than we were 30 years ago. And in 2003, I had to turn away 312 of those calls for people asking me to rescue lions or tigers or leopards. All of the legitimate sanctuaries and a legitimate sanctuary is one that does not buy, breed, sell or allow public contact or take the animals off site like to fairs and circuses. We had to turn away 312 cats that year. And every other year, that number was doubling. And so from 1998 forward, I had been working on a federal bill with a group of other people like, you know, the Humane Society of the United States and the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And what we were trying to do was to ban the private possession of big cats and end some of these abusive practices. And we got a portion of it passed in 2003 that made it illegal to sell a big cat across state lines as a pet. So there were a lot of parameters because you have to negotiate things to get them through Congress. But as a result of that, the next year, instead of having to turn away anywhere from 400 to 600 big cats, because that was the trajectory we were on, it dropped and it dropped to like 165, I think. And so I realized then we can't educate our way out of this. We can't rescue our way out of this. We just have to change the laws. And so we have doubled down on that. And as a result of working with this same coalition of nonprofits, we have managed to pass or mostly them. I mean, these are much bigger, much bigger nonprofits than we are, but they've done a lot of state actions that we've been very supportive of to ban the private ownership or the breeding of these cats in states. And so every year, the number of cats we have to turn away has continued to drop. We've had one year that was only like 17 cats that we couldn't take in. And by this time, the sanctuaries now had the capacity to be able to take those cats in. So there weren't situations where there was just no place for a cat to go. So right now, the sanctuaries have plenty of capacity to take in the rest of the animals. And we're really expecting that 2022, which is the year of the tiger, is going to be the year that the Big Cat Public Safety Act passes. When that happens, that stops the cub petting, which is what drives most of the breeding, and it phases out private ownership. So people who have them can keep them, they just can't buy or breed more. Yeah, I mean, when people hear you talk, Karen, when you're a passionate woman, for sure, and you know, you love the protection of these animals, and it's so great to, to see. And I know that's come a little bit of some sort of sacrifice for you, because we when you started to do this, maybe a little bit after the Minnesota time, you were in real estate. And I think that sort of part of your life either drifted away or there were some challenges there. Was, was that, do I have the understanding right? <laughs> that was not what caused it. Um, so I had been building the real estate business from about 1984 until my husband disappeared in 1997. And when he disappeared in 1997, the uh, entire business was drawn into a conservatorship. And what that did was the government (laughs) takes over everything that I owned, my entire real estate business. And this was because his family and his former secretary had gone to the courts asking for this conservatorship. And they didn't want the money going to the cats. And they felt like more of the money should go to them than to the cats. And so this conservatorship was established so that it would preserve (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the idea was it would preserve the assets until Don was found or declared dead, which takes five years, apparently. So what happened during that period of time is, and this whole thing with Britney Spears has been really interesting to me to yeah, see. Yeah, her courtship, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's exactly the same. 
once the government takes over or the courts take over your assets and they establish these rules, their rules say everybody's attorney gets paid out of your money, my money. So I'm paying the people who are fighting me and paying their attorneys to fight me. Well, you can imagine how much attorneys can rack up to Mm. just completely annihilate an, an estate that way. And as a result of not being able to make the same kinds of decisions that I had made for the real estate company in all of the years before, as far as where to invest, what to invest in, how to handle the investments, the entire business was just decimated. And so it went from being about a $5 million business to, I think maybe at the end of it, I may have had 2 million out of that, but I have built it back up and it's now stronger than it's ever been before. But I've still had to do all of that while raising anywhere from three and a half to $4 million a year to run the sanctuary separately. So it's a huge, huge operation to take care of all of the cats that we do and all of the programs that we serve and the work that we do in the wild to protect cats in the wild. We fund about $100,000 of that every year. So that $4 million a year, I've had to raise from donations and through other things that we do at the sanctuary, gift shop sales, things like that, in addition to running my real estate business. But thankfully, my real estate business has managed to recover, despite the fact that I've been so distracted for the past 30 years. Keeping well, yeah, and, and that's most probably, <laughs> I maybe asked an ambiguous question there, but I, but I got to where I wanted to go because... When I was talking to my, my wife about you coming on the podcast, she said, well, what are you going to ask her? And I said, when I see her, I said, I see resilience. And I think from, you know, you telling that story being 15, working in the, the state government, people were questioning, are you too young to, you know, to, to leave at home? To, to, uh, so many things have happened. You're obviously a very resilient person and that sort of shines through. And, you know, it's interesting when, you know, the... So much of the show was focused on on the sort of the eccentric side of you. And then there's the side of, you know, the sort of murdered your ex-husband and this type of stuff. But I mean, when you look at that, um, for me, I've had people come to me and, you know, maybe say adverse things about me before and it's short-lived. But you've had a consistent uh, sort of has been a consistent undertone throughout the show that Joe Exotic was talking about, you know, you sort of murdering your ex-husband and in the press. I mean, how do you... How do you overcome that, Carol? How do you not let it affect you in your day-to-day life that there's these constant allegations sort of simmering around that, uh, you know, you might might have murdered your your husband? Well, when I was looking at your show and it, it, a lot of the headlines were saying things to the effect of before I came who I, before I became who I am. And I thought, before I became who I am, the most hated woman on the planet. <laughs> Well, you've, wow. you've made my life easy because I think you've, you've maybe you've given me a title, you know, how I became the most hated woman. I love Jacob and Carol. But yeah, but I mean, honestly, for you, I mean, because for some people, and particularly on the type of people I get on my show, they're overcomers. They've taken pivots or they've discovered something about themselves where they didn't know they had a strength before. But it does take a certain amount of person where you can just keep pushing that away. So, I mean, how, how do you... How do you do that or what, how does it affect you, Carol? I think other people think that this might be harder for me to deal with than I think it is for me to deal with because I get asked that question a lot. How do you deal with all that hate? How do you deal with people saying such nasty things? And it just doesn't affect me personally because I know it's not true. If it were true, that might be something different, but it just doesn't affect me. The only thing that I have been concerned about from all of the false narrative that came out of Tiger King 
is that it would damage the mission. And my mission is a world where all wildcats live free. And because of the fact that I was painted as this gold digging, home wrecking murderer, then it really concerned me as to whether or not I would be able to still go to the members of Congress and talk to them about getting this federal bill passed or if they would be afraid to even be associated with me. And so it took a while, I think, for things to turn around. The Dancing with the Stars helped because I mean, <laughs> it didn't help for anybody to see that I can't dance. But the nice thing that they did for me, the crew behind Dancing with the Stars, is they lined up media for me the entire time I was there. And it was part of the negotiation that I made to be there was I wanted to get the message out that the cats were the ones who really lost out in Tiger King. And that we have to protect them now or we're going to lose the tiger in the wild in the next five years. And so they lined up all kinds of press for me. If I wasn't dancing or practicing dancing, I was talking to the media. And I think that that helped change the narrative away from all of the craziness that was dumpster fire of a train wreck that was Tiger King and actually got people thinking about the animals and what we need to do to protect them. You know, and I think you're, you're right. I think for those people with common sense and watch the show objectively as what it is being um you know this sort of this reality bubble that sort of show became i think it is true that the animals really lost out because the very platform it had to elevate their cause it really undermined it and it became secondary to a lot of what we call in england the sort of pantomime um, show maybe and i think it's interesting as well, Carol, because when I talked to you, I, I had no preconceptions. I'm, you know, I'm a former detective in England. I take people very much as I find them. Uh, and I try not to um, get any judgments about people from what you read or, or, or see. But, you know, you're very calm and, and collected in your thoughts and having this conversation. And maybe is there a bit of a sort of a, a persona on some of the social media as to how the show portrayed you? What were you sort of playing up for the... For the, for the cameras, or, or is that just for the sort of the outgoing Carol that sort of puts on the show for people? I'm a recluse by nature, and if I'm if I'm calm right now, I can't understand how because we haven't mowed our grass out here in six months. And today, while I'm on your show, the lawnmower is like going around okay, and around, yeah. around my office. <laughs> we're trying to edit out. I can't hear it. So we're trying to edit it out. <laughs> but no, but you are. You, you come. You very very sort of calm and stuff. And it's just a different persona. But I guess maybe. There's a lesson in there for people around social media and reality TV that people can often be portrayed to be some of them. They're not all their small sort of snapshots in time because I believe most of my listeners would, would favor with me to say that you come across as a very different person as to how you're represented on the on the show. And, and I think you're right, you know, the cats did definitely lose out. And um, there, there is, I just, I don't want to go too much into the, the, the Joe Exotic type stuff, but there is a question that I want to pose to you, and I'm just interested to get your answer because we know the sort of the hitman for hire, um, you know, and his incarceration, this type of stuff. But uh, when I look at the, when I look at his life, I think what I see is, uh, hopefully he doesn't have too many friends here in Minnesota to work out where I am again, but, but, uh, but I see a person who's very troubled, who's got mental illness, and was and, and just his circle around him, there was little accountability and, and he just didn't have anyone to sort of stop him moving in a certain path. I mean, there's definitely some sort of mental illness and stuff in there. Um, so that, that's what I see. And if there's anyone of his fans in Minnesota, I'm sure they'll find me out and say, Simon, you're wrong. But I guess taking aside everything which occurred, 
and hitman to hire. I see a person who's got mental illness and that not justifies his actions, but what does Carol Baskin see in Joe Exotic? Who do you think he is? Well, I don't have any expertise in, in psychiatry, but everything that I have heard others with that kind of expertise say is that he is a malignant narcissist. And I think it is kind of common with these big cat guys to be that kind of personality who create a world around them where they are. And he said, he said it in Tiger King, but he said it a lot of other times too, that he was the judge, jury, and executioner in his world. And I think he believed that, that he had that power because of the fact that he surrounded himself with people who had even more mental troubles, I think, than he did. And I think by him leading this mob of people who just, they didn't have anything going for them except for the fact that they could be big shots because of the fact that they were walking tigers on leashes or they were enabling people to have that once in a lifetime experience of petting a cub and telling the people that they were serving conservation to do that when none of that was true. It was just a con to separate people from their money. And when these people gather around them, others that are willing to buy into their fantasy, I think they can become very, very dangerous and most dangerous to the people closest to them who they seem to treat as bad or worse than anybody like me on the outside of that. <laughs> I don't think there's any chance of redemption for somebody like Joe Exotic or Doc Antle. I, I don't think they want to be redeemed. They don't want to learn from their mistakes from any, anything that I've seen in the decades of dealing with them. Yeah. And when the, the show was recorded over sort of six or seven years, wasn't it? So it was a different sort of snapshots in time. But um, well, when you look at, your the sort of the, the, the rise in popularity or not popularity Karen depending on whether you say you're the most hated woman and going on things like Dancing with the Stars and just the show in general you know I mean it was Netflix is one of their biggest I believe biggest ever shows what did you learn about yourself during during that sort of show I don't know that I learned it about myself so much as I learned it about the industry because I'm the same person talking to you that was talking to the producers of Tiger King. And I'm talking to you in the same manner and with the same attitude and the same information and everything. But if you were to film me for the next five years talking to you and then only take out the clips that served you to create a narrative that you were trying to create that was something totally foreign to who I am, you can do that. And, you know, if I look back across the filming that we did with them and they said that they were working on a show called, not called Blackfish, but like Blackfish, that would expose this cruel industry of ripping cubs from their mothers and using them as pay to play props and then discarding them into private hands where they then ultimately end up in the illegal trade for their parts. This was supposed to be something that was going to help us put an end to that. And instead, it turned out to be what it was. But if you if I look back across all of those years of filming with them, they would ask me the same question over and over and over again. 
And when they finally got this annoyed look from me, like, what is it that you're not understanding about this? You know, that's the kind of thing that made it into the final clip. Not the first time or the second time or the third time that I answered the question without being a bitch. So, you know, if you try hard enough, you can do just about anything with film, I think. Yeah, and I think maybe I should have asked you a question, how did it grow you? And it's definitely seemed to have grown you in self-reflection and the understanding as to what sort of reality TV is. And you obviously dipped into it again with, with Dancing with the Stars. So um, there was no, what do I call that ball that you can win in Dance with the Stars? The mirror ball. The, the mirror ball, yeah. So you didn't bring home the mirror ball, but you, you, know, you, you, you reclaimed some of the public, which is you know, most probably um, just as good. So you know, as we start to get towards the ending, Carol, tell us a bit about... Uh, what can people do? So I know we've got your Big Cat Rescue down in Tampa, Florida. Um, you know, you've got your website. Just tell people a little bit about uh, how they can help with the, your cause of trying to sort of stop people breeding these animals deliberately for, you know, really for their own pleasure and entertainment. They're, they're not doing it for the good of the animals. So I'd love for you just to sort of take a few moments and let us know what we can do to help you. Well, if people want to know who I really am, they can watch Carol Baskin. Listen to a show. You just, you just told us, Carol. Yeah. <laughs> and it's streaming on Discovery Plus. I also put out a day from my diary every day at SaveTheCats.org. It's a YouTube channel. And I have, I'm up to like the year 2016 now. So it's every thought I ever had, every stupid thought I ever had. If you want to know anything about my life, it's in my diary and it's out there in the public for anybody to judge. But judge me by the truth. Don't judge me by what somebody made up about me or what a bunch of animal abusers said about me. And as far as how people can help, there's two ways. If you are in the United States, you can go to bigcatact.com and actually roar out for the cats. When you type in your name and address, it will look up your member of Congress and allow you to send an email. You can send a tweet and or you can call them. It'll actually dial them for you and give you a script as to what to say, asking them to support the Big Cat Public Safety Act. That's the biggest thing that will stop the abuse of these cubs is stopping the cub petting, which results in all of these cubs being born and discarded. If you're not in the US, the thing that you can do that would help the animals the most is if you're on social media, I know you've seen these clips of people posing with cubs, posing with adult cats, rolling around on the ground with lions or tigers or cheetahs, depending on where you live as to who the, who the cat guy in your area is, call them out on that. It's never good for the cats. The only way they get away with that is by ripping the cubs away as soon as they're born. They don't get a healthy diet. They never get to go back to their mothers. And as soon as they're adults, they're going to be discarded in favor of using more cubs. A lot of times people see those cats and they think that they're adults because they're 300, 400 so pounds, big. but they're just kittens. Yeah. And Carol, I'd like to end with two questions. So uh, what is your biggest self-discovery? My biggest self-discovery? Um, I am such a recluse and I don't like interacting with people or talking to people or going out in public. But if you have a strong enough fire in your belly to do some social good, I think that has allowed me to overcome what my comfort level to be able to do those things. I really, really hate it. And I thought the COVID-19 was going to be like the best thing ever because we'd all stay home. <laughs> but, Doesn't work um, out that way. <laughs> okay. And then the, the second one I've got for you is, um, as you look back on your life, what do you want people to know about your story? I don't really care what people think about me. What I care about is what they're going to do about saving the planet. 
if we can't save the tiger, we can't save this planet. People aren't going to save trees. You got to save the tiger in order to save the trees, the forests, everything else that we need to be able to survive here on this planet. So I don't care if anybody ever remembers my name. I just hope they do something. Get off the freaking couch and do something before we totally annihilate ourselves. Well, and that's a great message to end on. Get get off the freaking couch. <laughs> There's a lot of us that do that, and we spend a lot of time wasted, don't we? Sit around when we could be taking action steps. But, you know, Carol, it's been really nice to uh, talk to you, to get to know you a bit more, to hear more your personal journey as to how you became who you became. So, eternally grateful that you took time out of your busy day to join me on the show. So, thank you, Carol. Thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast. To help spread this inspiring story, be sure to share it with your friends hit the like button, and of course, subscribe to our channel so you won't miss out on any future episodes. We'd also love to hear how this story impacted you. So leave us a comment on whatever platform you're watching us from. To learn more about this episode, our guests, or Simon, head over to simonosimo slash podcast and sign up to receive the latest information delivered straight to your inbox. Once again, thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast.